Hello everyone. It is Sunday again. Time for another installment of Altitude Crime. For those of you listening for the first time, welcome to the Altitude Crime podcast. I am so excited to have you joining me. And for all my friends that came back from last week, you are awesome. I sincerely thank you and I'm excited to tell you the rest of today's story. For those of you who don't know, my name is Amelia Allen, and like you, I can't get enough of true crime. But I have found there are a lot of cases from my own backyard that I didn't even know about. And that is the void that Altitude Crime is here to fill. I will be covering Colorado crimes from the obscure to the infamous. If you're joining me from Colorado, I hope you'll learn from these crimes and be engaged to help victims and families in the ones that we can. If you aren't a resident, I hope you learn something new and get involved too. I know we are just moments into the podcast, but why don't you go ahead and follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or on Twitter at Altitude Crime. Feel free to drop me a DM with your thoughts on this episode or even suggest a crime. I'd love to cover what you guys want to hear. And you can always visit the website altitudecrime.com for source materials. And now, spoiler alert, merchandise! Today's story is the second part of our two-part story about the kidnapping and murder of Adolf Coors III. Now, if this is your first time joining me, I recommend stopping right now and hopping on over to episode one to get the full background on this crime. For those of you that are caught up and ready to go, let's get into it. And a huge shout out to anyone who listened during the soft opening of the podcast in the few days before last Sunday. I know you have been dying to know more and you had a little bit more of a wait than everybody else. So thank you so much. Thanks everyone for listening, and let's get into the story. At the end of last week's episode, authorities had finally located Ad's body in September 1960 near the Douglas County dump. The find came seven months after Ad's initial disappearance and with no word from his kidnapper in between. While the FBI had pinpointed their key suspect, Joseph Corbett Jr., they had yet to locate him. This is where we pick up our story with the ramping up of the search for Ad's killer, who was still on the land. This manhunt was huge. According to History.com, 1.5 million wanted posters of Corbett were distributed in an effort to reach anyone who had any clues about his whereabouts. The story stayed in the public eye, even being featured in Reader's Digest. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was still keen on getting his man, and the FBI had taken no break in the investigation. On October 25, 1960, two really big tips happened in the search for Corbett. A Reader's Digest subscriber directed the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the FBI to a Toronto apartment of a man who looked like Corbett. As it turns out, (laughs) Corbett had some guts when he left Colorado. 
Through most of his travels as he left the U.S., he continued to use his most recent alias, Walter Osborne, and he made virtually no effort to change his appearance. So when his pictures were showing up in Reader's Digest and in the news, anyone could have picked him out of a crowd. When the authorities arrived at the Toronto apartment, the renter was already gone. Some concerning items were left behind, though, including chains, padlocks, and a paperback printing of The Anatomy of Murder by Robert Travers. So this was a really popular book at the time, and I've actually not read it. So if any of you have, let me know on social media if you'd recommend it. I don't think this being in his apartment is so much condemning as it is just kind of ironic because it was such a popular book at the time. As the FBI were investigating the apartment in Toronto, they were alerted to Corbett's whereabouts in Winnipeg by the Canadian police. The manager of the boarding house Corbett had been staying at in Winnipeg had called in. The man she knew who looked like Corbett was living under the name Ian McIntosh. She had seen him driving a fire engine red Pontiac. And again, with these nondescript cars, and I say that super sarcastically because he goes from a canary yellow Mercury to a fire engine red Pontiac and doesn't change his appearance. I feel like this guy was looking to get caught at this point. Concurrently, a police officer doing his rounds had started to see a similar Pontiac outside of a local motor inn called the Maxine Hotel. This was the new location of Corbett, using the alias Thomas C. Wainwright as his registration at the inn. After confirming his location at the Maxine, Canadian detectives and the FBI took to the room on October 29th. They posed as a typewriter delivery as the landlady had told them Corbett would be expecting one that afternoon. And this really has to make you wonder, who was he going to kidnap for ransom this time? I mean, why else did he need a typewriter? And that's clearly how he went to execute his first crime. So really makes you wonder about what, what was really next on his mind. Corbett seemed to have been calm when he replied to the knock on the door. In Philip Jett's novel, The Death of an Heir, he is quoted as saying, quote, I give up. I'm the man you want, unquote. Corbett had only a few possessions at the hotel. One of these was a brown hat, size 7 and 3 eighths, the same size as the fedora left at Turkey Creek Bridge all those months before. Corbett was captured 263 days after Ad's disappearance, but only about a month and a half after Ad's body was found. News of Corbett's capture splashed over the headlines of newspapers and even overshadowed the news of the 1960 presidential election, which included candidates John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Corbett was taken to Vancouver police headquarters after his capture. Interestingly, the FBI notified him of his rights at this time. I didn't know this, but the FBI was explaining self-incrimination to alleged criminals over six years prior to the Miranda versus Arizona court proceeding. Uh, Miranda versus Arizona led to the creation of Miranda rights that are read at all arrests now. The FBI knew they got lucky with the timing of the sightings of Corbett. Agents had found out that he was trying to find a ship that would transport to him to Australia. Had that happened, they may have not caught him for a long time, or he may have never been caught. 
Corbett was held in Canada under a charge for an unregistered firearm. This bought the authorities the time to get him extradited to the U.S. It seems Corbett did not really see the use in fighting authorities at this point. He waived his right to an extradition hearing, which delivered him directly into the hands of the U.S. legal system. He was then driven to Blaine, Washington, where the handoff between Canadian authorities and the FBI occurred. Corbett was then on to Seattle, where he also signed off to be extradited to Colorado. He would be held in King County Jail in Tacoma until Colorado law enforcement arrived to transport him into a Colorado holding cell while he awaited trial. The Colorado arrest and transport was to be executed by Sheriff Wearmuth. Needless to say, he was thrilled to be the man that the press would see taking Corbett to justice. The sheriff was accompanied on the trip by his wife, Colorado captain, and the Colorado DA. They first met with the FBI special agent and the city prosecutor to complete the extradition process. And the plan was that the next day they would go to the FBI Seattle office to take Corbett into custody. But it turns out Sheriff Wearmuth would not get his moment with the press this time around. When reporters saw him at the FBI office the next day, he boasted that he was there to take Corbett into custody and take him back to Colorado. It was the press that informed him that the suspect had already left on a plane with the FBI the night before. It seems Wormuth and J. Edgar Hoover were in a fight for publicity, and Hoover took the win on that, and was it a big W for the FBI. Corbett requested a lawyer pretty much immediately. Corbett had some interesting conversations with the FBI during his travels to Colorado, but he never gave anything away about the crime or his involvement. In regards to leaving Denver, he is quoted in Jet's novel as saying, quote, I had some trouble in my past and had been in that area. I figured the police would come knocking, unquote. And boy, was he right. Joseph Corbett Jr. was tried in Colorado only for Ad's murder. According to a look back of the case by the FBI, he did not receive federal kidnapping charges because Coors's remains were found in the state of Colorado. The prosecution was also really confident they didn't need the backup charge. They felt like they could get a guilty verdict for first-degree murder based on the evidence they had alone pointing to Corbett as Coors's killer. The trial started on March 13, 1961, 13 months after Coors's car was found abandoned at Turkey Creek Bridge. By the time the trial started, a new district attorney had been elected, and his name was Ronald J. Hardesty, and he had actually been a former FBI agent. The Coors murder was going to be his first big case, so I mean, talk about pressure. This had been in the media for so long that people just wanted justice and they wanted Corbett to pay, so there was a lot on his shoulders. The jury consisted of eight men and four women all of whom were sequestered due to the huge amount of publicity around this case. H. Malcolm McKay would serve as Corbett's defense counsel, and he ended up enlisting William H. Erickson as co-counsel. And as an interesting fact, Erickson would later become a Colorado Supreme Court justice, I believe in the 70s. And he also served on the Columbine Review Commission, uh, which was created after the 1999 Columbine school shooting. Corbett pleaded not guilty to his charges. The defense tried to object to the trial right away. 
The jury was excused, and they argued that the prosecution could prove that Coors was dead, but they couldn't prove without a reasonable doubt that Corbett should be the suspect, let alone even be on trial. Unsurprisingly, the motion was denied. There were also motions to move Corbett to a different holding facility, as Sheriff Wermuth and his deputies had been accused of assaulting and inappropriately interrogating Corbett in an effort to get a confession. The physical assault side of that was never confirmed, but it was said that he got very little privacy and he was subject to pretty lengthy interrogations. One of these interrogations even included a random late night trip to the Denver Police Department where Sheriff Wermuth tried to get Corbett to sign a confession, which he did not. Mistreatment of Corbett in jail eventually stopped, uh, but the press for Sheriff Wormuth didn't slow down while Corbett was in custody. In fact, it may have even gotten bigger. Wormuth was asked to endorse a number of popular products at the time, even including a very specific brand of cowboy hat that was made in Texas. The FBI supplied all the evidence they could to the prosecution. They wanted to make sure that Corbett was convicted. Part of what they included was 23 agents, five lab examiners, and a fingerprint expert that would be available to discuss evidence at trial. So here is a rundown of the major evidence provided during the trial as reported by both the FBI and the Denver Post. On June 8th, 1957... Corbett ordered a pistol through the mail. Now, this was three years prior to the crime, which in and of itself does not serve as much evidence. But when you stack it up with the rest of what I'm about to tell you, just like the prosecution did, it does become pretty compelling. On February 24th, 1959, Corbett ordered a pair of leg irons. On April 25th, 1959, he purchased four pairs of handcuffs. A 1957 gray and white Ford Fairlane had been seen near the Coors' home that was in downtown Denver prior to their move to the ranch. And this was the same type of car that Corbett had owned prior to trading it in to get the yellow Mercury. Corbett was also known to have a 1946 or 47 Dodge. And these were all types of cars that had been seen around the Coors' home, both in downtown and at the ranch, on multiple occasions. Corbett purchased the Canary Yellow Mercury on January 8, 1960. This was just one month prior to the crime. Later that month, on January 25, 1960, Corbett is officially placed in Morrison, Colorado for the first time. Uh, he was ticketed for improper passing while driving the Yellow Mercury in town. And as a little fun fact, uh, the ticket was only $8. Don't you wish that was still the case? Because I definitely just got a ticket for running a red light and that was $70. So I would have taken that $8 ticket so fast. There were a lot of alleged sightings of someone in the yellow mercury near the ranch home, even by the Coors family themselves. Prior to the abduction, Coors had been made aware of the car by their maid, Thelma Kaufman. And according to Philip Jett's novel, on one evening, Coors even saw the car himself and tried to approach it to see what the person was wanting. But of course, the car drove off before he got to it. Dirt from the Yellow Mercury was linked to the area where Coors was supposedly grabbed near his abandoned car, as well as to the dirt found in the areas around the Douglas City dump. 
the ransom note was typed and there was record of Corbett working for a typing service during his time in college. The typewriter used to type the ransom note was determined to be a Royalite portable typewriter. The FBI got the sales list of all Royalite typewriters sold in Denver. They visited all the homes of buyers listed and they narrowed down the serial number to just one. The clerk from the store was able to describe Corbett as the buyer, although at the time he gave the name William Schiffens. And this specific clerk was also able to pick up Corbett out of a photo lineup. So the FBI then cross-referenced and found that a William Chiffins had never existed in the entire state of Colorado. However, according to Jet's novel, Corbett did know a man named Arthur John Sheffins with an E versus Sheffins with an I when he was housed in San Quentin. So that certainly seems to not be a coincidence if you're looking at Corbett as the main suspect for this case. The FBI was also able to run down where the paper from the ransom note was most likely purchased. The clerk from that shop was also able to positively identify Corbett. As noted in an article in the Seattle Times, prior to the crime, one of Corbett's co-workers from Benjamin Moore Paint, which was a job he held under the alias Walter Osborne before leaving the state of Colorado, said that he had often bragged that he would have a, quote, big score, unquote, of half a million dollars coming soon. And of course, that was the same amount that was in the ransom note. Corbett and all the cars seemingly attached to him all seem to have left Morrison at the same time that Coors went missing. So you've got a lot of evidence stacking against him. Since Corbett refused to testify, the prosecution was left to speculate on his motive. According to Jett's novel, the prosecution portrayed the following crime scene. Since Corbett had been staking out the Coors' ranch, he knew the route the ad would need to take to work. Coors would have normally taken a route directly to Highway 285. However, a portion of the road had been closed for construction, so this forced Coors to have to take a gravel road that ran over Turkey Creek Bridge and through the Turkey Creek Canyon that would eventually connect with Highway 285 much farther up the road. Knowing that Coors would have to cross the bridge and what time Coors would cross the bridge, Corbett set himself up to look like a motorist in distress. He placed his car so that it would keep Ad from being able to pass in his vehicle. People who knew Adolf Coors III knew he was tough. It was theorized that Coors tried to fight off his attacker as he was not a man to back down. The ensuing scuffle caused both men's hats and Coors's glasses to fall off, then being found on the riverbank and in the creek. In a panic that his victim was maybe getting away after breaking loose from the fight, Corbett shot Coors in the back twice. A nearby neighbor named Rosemary Stitt would later testify to hearing yelling and a large noise near the bridge that morning. And then, of course, knowing what occurred later, Rosemary assumed that the loud noise she had heard was the gunshots. At this point, Coors was most likely deceased or very close to it. So Corbett is thought to have wrapped him in a blanket and put him in the yellow mercury as a blanket had been found with Coors's remains or near Coors's remains. Corbett then dumped the body prior to exiting the state of Colorado. 
It was proposed that he chose to leave the body at the Douglas County dump because Corbett had been their target shooting before and was at least somewhat familiar with the area. It was this transport of the body of Ad Coors that left a number of dirt samples at the bottom of the yellow mercury that were then used at trial. There was no particular explanation of the motive other than it was a crime of greed. Throughout the trial, Corbett maintained that he was innocent. However, he failed to ever provide an alibi or any explanation as to why he didn't commit the crime. Given that their client didn't give them much to work with, his defense was forced to try to poke holes in the prosecution's evidence, which could maybe be considered somewhat of a circumstantial case. Multiple motions were set forward by the defense, most of which were denied. These motions included the defense asking for a copy of the FBI report on Corbett to be prepared, asking for a list of prosecution witnesses, again, just to be prepared, wanting to set a bail, the aforementioned ask to move Corbett to another holding facility, another motion saying that he should be acquitted because he did not receive due process of law, a request to appoint an expert, and a change of courtroom venue due to the publicity of the case. I mean, you can say the defense attorneys definitely tried their best and they used every procedural trick in the book. Uh, Corbett in no way could ever say that he didn't have effective counsel because they threw out every motion that they possibly could. There were a couple of their motions that were granted. The most important one was the exclusion of the press from the courtroom. There was already so much insane publicity about the case that all that they allowed was just a few newspapermen and they weren't allowed cameras. So at least there was a little bit of privacy around the courtroom proceedings. The defense opted to save their opening arguments for the end of the trial and didn't present an opening at all. Their main goal really was to try to point out the weaknesses in the prosecution's theory. The first was the vagueness of the fedora found at the abduction scene. It could not be proved that a size 7 and 3 eighths hat with no other identifying factors absolutely belonged to Corbett. There were hundreds of thousands of men that wore that same size hat, and without a name tag or any kind of hat shop or anything that could point to it specifically being Corbett's, that didn't really seem to hold much water. Maybe the most intriguing piece of evidence that they tried to bring in to kind of create some reasonable doubt was that there was a fingerprint in the travel all that was found that did not belong to Ad or to Corbett. The FBI worked to rule out anybody else that that could possibly belong to, anybody that'd been in the car, Mary, the kids, the brothers, anybody that Ad could have possibly traveled with. And to this day, from what I'm aware, the fingerprint has never been identified. The defense also disagreed with the deduction that the FBI made about the Royal Light typewriter. That was the process that they worked through, that they got the list of the buyers and went person by person to see if that Royal Light matched. The defense argued that the typewriter could have been bought outside of Denver and that the FBI only looked into purchases that happened in Denver. So this could have opened a pool of suspects that the FBI had never spoken to. 
Lastly, they pointed out that the murder weapon and the typewriter were never found and could not be identified as belonging to Corbett or to any other potential suspect for that matter. Mary and the Coors brothers only attended trial on the day they had to testify. Their testimony largely included identifying Ad's clothes from the day of the disappearance. The Rocky Mountain News later described Mary's testimony as, quote, Her appearance was brief, but her presence will be felt for the duration of the trial. Unquote. The jury was left to make a decision based on the evidence alone, since Corbett remained assertive of his innocence and he chose to not take the stand. Corbett did know that he was destined for jail regardless of the conviction in Colorado. California was actually ready to extradite him for the prison escape if he was not found guilty in the Coors case. There is one kind of funny story from this case. So during deliberation, the bailiff took coffee to the juror since they had been in the jury room deliberating for a while. And he ended up getting in trouble because the box he carried the coffee in with said Coors on the side. And the judge was enraged because he felt that it could look like the court was trying to sway the jurors in a certain direction. And in this bailiff's defense, I'm sure it was hard to find a box in that area of Colorado at that time that did not have Coors written on it. The jury deliberated for two days and took 12 ballots. They eventually convicted Joseph Corbett Jr. on first-degree murder on March 29, 1961. He was sentenced to life in prison. He would serve his sentence in the affectionately called Old Max in Canyon City. This was the Colorado Territorial Correction Facility, a maximum security prison they knew Corbett couldn't escape from. On a side note, I'm thinking about doing an episode on what famous criminals are housed or have been housed in the prisons in Canyon City over the years. Uh, So let me know on any of the Altitude Crime social media platforms if you guys would be interested in this. Corbett was not eligible for the death sentence when he received his guilty verdict. The death sentence in Colorado at the time had two requirements that there must be an eyewitness of the crime, and there also must be a confession by the suspect. Neither of these were available in this case. Over the course of the trial, a couple of eyewitnesses, and again, I say that very sarcastically, came forward. However, they were really quickly eliminated from the trial because it became obvious that they knew nothing about the reality of the crime, but were just inserting themselves into the trial. For anyone unaware or who is wondering, the state of Colorado abolished the death penalty just last year in 2020, and anyone who was sitting on death row had their sentences commuted to life. Now, you would think that would be the last we would hear from Joseph Corbett Jr., but you would be wrong. Colorado state law was changed shortly after his imprisonment. There was a new law that gave anyone serving a life sentence a parole hearing after 10 years of time served. Corbett was originally up for parole in 1978. This was not met with kind words from the governor, the Coors family, and the public, so he was not released. Corbett was released by the parole board the following year on July 10th, 1979, after serving only 19 years. In a Seattle Times quote from his parole board hearing, Corbett said, quote, 
I see myself as a pretty commonplace man who through sheer bizarre circumstances got involved in something notorious, unquote. Upon his release, he went to San Francisco, where he had a place to live with his cousin. The next day, he returned to Colorado to close his bank account. This trip would end Corbett's freedom, as being in the state of Colorado again was a violation of his parole. He was put back in prison for a brief time and was paroled again on December 12, 1980. He received five years of supervised parole. Philip Jett's novel shed a lot of light on what happened to everybody else attached to this case after Corbett's sentence. Ad's death was a life sentence of misery for Mary Coors. She moved her family away from Ad's beloved ranch prior to his remains being found and eventually sold the ranch after his death was confirmed. The ranch was the beginning of Ad's dream to be a full-time rancher instead of being a beer brewer. His dream lasted only a year and a half before his fatal run-in with Joseph Corbett Jr. Mary drank heavily through the search for Ad and his killer, and that did not stop after resolution of the trial. In addition to the horror of Ad's murder and the ensuing search for his killer, she was surrounded by early deaths throughout her life. Ad died at age 44, and both of her parents passed away in their 50s. And saddest of all, their oldest daughter, Brooke, died of lymphoma at age 26. Mary never remarried. The last early death she would experience would be her own. Mary died in 1975 at the age of 60. She had fallen down a flight of stairs at a friend's home and died as a result of her injuries. This is a perfect example of how crimes like this go so far beyond the victim as a family member, friend, or whatever, it has to be so monumentally difficult to cope with something like this happening. And you can't blame when someone just can't find a way to move on in a healthy way because there's got to be such difficulty in it, even attempting to do that. So I can never judge how someone lives their life after something tragic like this happens. The Coors brothers, Bill and Joe, became very aware of who they hired and had around them at the brewery. They added questionnaires to applications to try to identify potential criminals against their family. Ad's death had made them both really fearful of strangers, and for good reason. Ad's parents both died in 1970. Mary and her kids were not included in their wills after Ad's passing. Sheriff Wearmuth resigned in May 1962 after being indicted for misappropriation of county funds. One of the big arguments regarding this was paying for his wife to accompany him to Seattle to pick up Corbett. All her travel expenses were put on the county's dime. He was seen as addicted to media recognition, and that was not taken well by the people of Jefferson County. They felt that certain incidents that occurred, such as a jailbreak in 1956 in which the escapees were caught, was just a ruse for him to get media attention. Corbett lived out the rest of his life in relative reclusiveness, mere miles from where he took Adcors' life. He gave an interview only one time. The Denver Post reported that he wanted to be left alone, so he didn't try to prove his innocence after being released from prison. On August 24, 2009, Joseph Corbett Jr. was pronounced dead at 8.28 a.m. 
He killed himself with a gunshot to the head and left no note. If he really was the murderer of Adolf Coors III, then the answers we wish we had about this case have gone with him to the grave. Just as there's no more ad, there is no more Turkey Creek Bridge either. Only a small clump of trees remains where it once stood. There is no memorial to add or any of the horrible things that happened that cold February day in 1960. So I'd like to wrap up today's episode with some general opinions about this case. I like to call them my musings. So musing number one. Cases like this are so devastating because they often leave more questions than answers. If Joseph Corbett Jr. was guilty, the Coors family still never received any closure on why he targeted Ad and exactly what happened in the last moments of his life. While the prosecution painted what is most likely an accurate picture of the crime, it still leaves a lot of questions when you don't hear it out of the horse's mouth. And if Joseph Corbett Jr. was innocent, like he claimed to his death, the real killer or killers will most likely never be identified or brought to justice. Musing number two. This case can certainly send you down some major rabbit holes. My first thought when the evidence was laid out was it seemed like he intended to kidnap more than one person, considering how many restraints he had purchased. There could have been an initial plan to take more of the Coors family for ransom, or even someone else influential, in order to make more profit. Musing number three. There's also a lot of debate on if Corbett had an accomplice. That definitely makes me wonder about the fingerprint and the travel all that was never identified. However, I have a really hard time wrapping my head around this theory purely because while it would explain an unidentified fingerprint at the scene, it doesn't quite fall in line for me with Ad being shot at the bridge. You would think that two kidnappers could have subdued him and that the crime would have maybe stayed at the level of a kidnapping. And if there was an accomplice, Corbett had to have had a really deep relationship with that person to never fess up about them. Because so often you see that as soon as a criminal is in a pinch, they will turn on anybody else involved. Musing number four. This is not so much an opinion of the case as kind of just a really interesting note about it. According to Jet's book, a close friend of Ad's dad, who was also very influential in Colorado, was Charles Betcher II. In February 1933, he was kidnapped and returned after two weeks for a large ransom. When they found the kidnappers' possessions, there was a list of possible victims, and Ad's dad was on that list, so that was Adolf Coors II. So it was definitely something that was on the Coors' radar as something that could possibly happen to them. Around that time frame, kidnappings for large sums of money was really common, but the growth of the FBI over the following decades had put a stop to the trend as kidnappers were often caught in the act or before they received any funds. So in the time of Ad's life, kidnappings for ransom weren't nearly as common, so it wasn't something they worried about quite as much. I may cover the case of Betcher's kidnapping in a later episode, but I want to cover some more modern crimes first. I don't want this podcast to only be about historical crimes, so you can expect a wide range of crimes being covered in the future. And my last musing. 
Cases like this always make me wonder how we will feel about contemporary killers when they are released from prison. We may be really enraged about them now, but how will we feel about them when they're 80 and frail and keeping to themselves in some little apartment? I would love to hear your thoughts about my opinions about this case and about the case in general, so please share them on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or on Twitter at Altitude Crime. And that brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, thanks so much for spending this time of your day with me. Let's plan on doing it next week. Go ahead and follow or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts and connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or on Twitter at Altitude Crime. I'd love to hear what you guys thought of the case and please, please feel free to suggest new ones. You can also visit the website, altitudecrime.com, for source materials. And yes, as I said earlier, merch. We've got t-shirts, mugs, masks, you know, because COVID life. So definitely check it out. Since at this point, you've either stuck around for two episodes or done a little catch up on this story with me, why don't you go ahead and leave a review and recommend the podcast to your true crime loving peeps. If you want to read more about this case, i definitely recommend The Death of an Heir by Philip Jett. You'll see a link to the book on the website. Also, if you're needing something a little light after that story, hop on over to Amazon where you can purchase my collection of adolescent poetry. Just search for the title A Teenager's Diary by Amelia Allen. Well, that's it for today, but I cannot wait to see you next Sunday for another episode of Altitude Crime. Episode 2, The Kidnapping and Murder of Adolf Kors III, Part 2, was written, produced, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.